You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. Glad you could join me on a Monday afternoon. Uh, I'm here doing the second of my weekly uh, live question and answer. This is the Monday one. This is the second one. Normally, for a couple of years now, I've been doing a Thursday afternoon question and answer whenever I can. And uh, in the midst of our coronavirus times, I thought I would just add another one during this season. And so we've added a Monday live question and answer time. And today uh, is the Monday one. And so I want to answer some questions that you have. You can submit them in the chat window. I'll get to them the best I can. And as is my habit, I begin with an opening question. Before I get to the opening question, let me just say happy Resurrection Monday to everybody or Easter Monday. Uh, it's a holiday for a lot of you people in Europe. And uh, God bless you for that, having a day off to remember the day after Easter. The great news for all of us is that Jesus Christ is still risen from the dead. He hasn't gone anywhere. He is enthroned in heaven still in his resurrection glory. And the resurrection, having happened some 2,000 years ago, is now a permanent feature, something for us to live in the power of every day of our lives. So we thank God for that. I hope you're able to get together with your church. There were probably very few of you who were able to gather together with your church in bodily presence, but it's amazing to see how God is using online uh, services to have a broader and a deeper reach than ever before. And so, just like it often is in the Christian life, seasons of particular challenge end up being seasons of particular opportunity because God is in control. So again, happy Easter Monday to you. Blessings to you all. And uh, let me get to our first question here, the question that uh, I wanted to raise at the beginning. It comes from New Creation. A new creation's question is like this. I'll just read the whole question and then frame it with my answer the best I can. Ready? This is what new creation asks. Here's the general heading. Is every leader appointed by God? Okay, so here's the question. Hi, Pastor Guzik. I wanted to ask you a question about leadership. How should a Christian view leadership? Does God himself appoint every leader? Did he appoint the store manager at Target, which is a department store in the United States and Canada? Did he appoint the store manager at Target or the assistant manager at McDonald's? I don't need to explain McDonald's. That's all over the world. How does a Christian honor God in dealing with a leader when you feel as though they are doing a very poor job and perhaps even a bit emotionally or psychologically unstable? I know the Bible tells us to pray for our evil leaders. Is it ever appropriate to ask God to remove a leader if it is not his will for them to be in leadership? Thank you for your faithfulness to God's word. All right, new creation. That is a great question. It's a broad question. The first kind of thing you're asking is, is it true that God appoints every leader? Okay, and then you ask several other questions along the way. Here's what I want to do. I want to give a quick answer to New Creation's question, just sort of ticking off the boxes with yeses and nos. And then I want to go through and lay out a few scriptural principles. Okay, ready for this? First of all, uh, does God appoint 
every leader. Okay, yes, God appoints leaders. And I'll talk about that from a biblical perspective a little bit later. But what I really want to focus in on is just the simple idea that God appoints leaders sometimes for blessing, sometimes for judgment. I mean, that's just how it works. So a good leader can be a blessing for a community, a culture, a nation, um, you know, whatever. Uh, a bad leader can be a form of judgment or God's discipline upon that community or nation or company or whatever. But I believe God appoints leaders. Um, now, let me just say this. Just because an, a leader is appointed by God doesn't necessarily mean that God wants that person to continue as a leader forever and ever. God appoints leaders, but also he appoints new leaders. So that's, yes, God appoints leaders. Um, number two, yes, God is in ultimate control of who becomes the manager at McDonald's, who becomes the manager at a Target department store. Yes, God is in charge of these things. God is in ultimate control. Listen, I, I just want you to know, I believe that God is in ultimate control of everything. Some things he does by his active hand. Other things God does by merely permitting to happen what happens. But whether God does something actively or whether God merely permits it, uh, things are being done at God's direction, at God's allowance. This is just how it is in the universe. Otherwise, you have a God who, in my perspective, and I think a biblical perspective, isn't God at all. A God who steps off the throne. Now, again, it doesn't mean that God actively performs everything, but it shows that at the very least, God allows certain things to happen. Okay, so yes, God is in ultimate control of who becomes the manager at McDonald's or a department store. Okay, third, here's what I would say. If you are under a bad leader, get out if you can. Okay, let, let's say you're, you're in a situation and you've got a bad leader. And it's, it's fully capable for you to say, God has appointed or allowed this leader to come into their position. And I don't want to remain under their leadership. Those aren't contradictory statements. If you're under a bad leader, get out if you can. Paul told slaves that if they could get their freedom, they should. And I'm not trying to say that if you're under a bad leader, you're a slave necessarily, but I'm just saying there's a principle there. If you're under a bad leader, if you're in the, get out if you can. I would say this, unless you have some specific direction from God that you should stay where you're at, try to improve your situation. If you can get a better job working for a better boss, do it. If you can move under a ministry where you'll be serving somebody who's just a better leader, do it. If you can do it in a way that honors God and gives glory to him, there's nothing wrong with trying to improve your situation. I don't think that it's a biblical, or maybe I should say a Christian point of view at all, to simply say, I'm in a bad situation. God has ordained this. I just have to stay under it. That's not biblical thinking at all. Again, unless you have some specific direction from God that you should stay where you're at, it's perfectly fine to try to improve your situation. Okay, number four. 
it's okay to tell a leader that you think they're wrong or you think that they're making a mistake. But if you do it, just make sure that you do it respectfully. Again, I think that's very important. If you have to tell a leader that you think they're wrong or making a mistake, do it respectfully, but it's okay to do it. And then lastly, I'd say this, it's okay to pray that God removes a leader, but then leave it in God's hands. Now, unless crimes are being committed as such, unless somebody is actually being abused in a situation and actively needs protection, those are different matters entirely. Where there's crimes being committed, yes, take it to the police. But, but if a person's just being a bad leader, if a person is just making unwise decisions, if a person's being what we might say in slang is just being a jerk, an unpleasant person to be with or to work with, um, no crimes being committed. There's no scandal except a person being very unpleasant to be with or to work with. That It's fine for you to pray that God would remove such a leader. But then, as I said, leave it in God's hands. Here's what you want to avoid. Well, let me get to get what you want to avoid. Let me just talk about this. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 tell us about government's legitimate authority and the Christian's response to it. It says this, Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I want you to notice, Paul there says every soul to be subject to the governing authorities. But Paul simply says we should be subject to them. Now, th this was in contrast to certain zealous Jewish people in the days of the New Testament who said that they would recognize no king but God. They would pay taxes to no one but God. And Paul says, no, that's not right. You recognize that there's a legitimate place for governmental authority in this world. Matter of fact, Paul doubles down on that where he says, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities exist are appointed by God. Now, again, we believe that God appoints a nation's or a state's or a community's leaders, but let's face it, not always to bless the people. Sometimes it's to judge the people. Sometimes it's to ripen the nation for judgment. Remember that Paul wrote this during the reign of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was no democracy, and it was no special friend to Christians in the days that Paul wrote. Yet Paul said they have legitimate authority. Now, since governments have authority from God, we're bound to obey them unless, of course, they order us to do something in contradiction to God's law. Then we are commanded to obey God before man. Let me say it again. We are commanded to obey God before man. God has many different orders of authority. There's an order of authority that he has in the community that we're discussing right here uh, with the king and civil government. There's an order of authority that God has in the home. There's an order of authority that God has in the church. There's an order of authority that God has between the employer and the employee. We find this throughout the New Testament. Now, in no 
human relationship or order of authority does God ever command absolute, unquestioned uh, obedience or submission? Because we are always to obey God before man. And if the government or in the home or our business or whatever the sphere is, if we are commanded to disobey God, then we should not obey that command. And I know there's many people who would want to tie this very directly to the present situation where churches are not having normal services. They're having services, but they're not having normal services because of the coronavirus thing. And, and the government has told churches don't meet. Let, let me tell you my basic take on this, and I'm going to just try to summarize it very quickly. I think that churches should not meet in regular church services, but not because the government tells them not to. We answer to a higher authority than the government. We do it because we see the assessment of our public health authorities. We look at what's going on in the culture. We look at what's going on in society. We look at what's going on with this disease that's going around with us, and we say, we, out of obedience to God and the command to love our neighbor, we are going to, for a season, suspend our normal church services. We're still going to have church services, just not in the normal way. But we don't fundamentally do it because the government tells us to. Look, as pastors and churches, we don't primarily take our orders from the government. We're called to respect authority. We're called to honor authority. No, but we do it fundamentally because we believe that God commands us to love our neighbor. And so we take seriously the public health recommendations that are made, and we seek to obey them as a way of loving our neighbor. So that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, in Romans chapter 13. But I think we should recognize that the Bible tells us that promotion comes from the Lord. Uh, this gets back to the question that was asked uh, regarding, uh, is the manager at McDonald's appointed by God? Is the store manager at the department store appointed by God? Listen, I believe so. Listen to what it says in Psalm 75, verses 6 and, six and 7. It says this, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. You see, anybody who is exalted, who is given a higher position, should realize that, that God has given it to them. We recognize that promotion, exaltation, comes not from the east or the west or the south. It comes from the Lord because God is the judge. Every successful person, any person who is exalted in any way should humbly look to God with gratitude. It's God who puts down one and exalts another. And any kind of promotion in any way should make us very humble before God. Now, it's not to say that hard work and preparation and good habits and other human aspects don't contribute to success. They clearly do. Yet even those things are gifts and abilities from God, and they should be regarded with humility and gratitude towards him. Now, let me give one more reason why you want to be supportive of those who are leaders against you, uh, leaders over you. Let's hope they're not leaders against you. 
I'm thinking of leaders against you because the example I'm going to give has to do with David and King Saul. Do you remember when David said that famous line to King Saul? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. Actually, it's repeated a few places, but this is one place where it's used. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. David says, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, meaning King Saul, for he is the Lord's anointed. This is the idea of don't touch the Lord's anointed. And listen, this principle of not striking out against God's anointed leaders, that's good. I think it's proper. We, we, we should understand that it's a good and proper principle, but it has sometimes been misused. And let me say, anytime it's been misused is too many times. You see, that phrase, touch not the Lord's anointed, that's in vogue among some Christians and among many leaders. And offered to them, it means like this. You should never speak against a pastor or leader. He is above your criticism or rebuke, so just keep quiet. Matter of fact, sometimes that phrase, touch not the Lord's anointed, is even used to present to prevent a biblical evaluation of somebody's teaching. But check this out. When David used this phrase in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he recognized that Saul was the Lord's anointed. He refused to harm Saul. What David would not do was to kill Saul. What David did do was he humbly confronted Saul with his sin, hoping that Saul would change his heart. But it's entirely wrong for people to use the idea, touch not the Lord's anointed, to sort of insulate a leader from any kind of evaluation or accountability. That's not the idea at all. Now, let me just say this, though. If you are going to speak to a leader, confront a leader, criticize a leader, remember the golden rule. If you were a leader, how would you want somebody to confront you? Would you want them to start a whispering campaign behind your back? No, you wouldn't want that. W would you want them to be angry and arrogant with you when you can? No, you wouldn't want that. You would want somebody humbly but directly to speak to you about what they think you don't know or are doing wrong and then leave the matter with them. Remember the golden rule. This was very much in David's mind in his dealings with Saul. Okay, that's about it. I hope I asked that, answered that question enough. Uh, if you're interested in more, we can follow up if you like. So uh, let me just kind of take my glance over at the chat part. We have been noticing a very blessed increase in the number of people who are viewing live. Of course, that's a great blessing. It may mean that in the future, we go to a moderator to help me deal with the questions. Because I feel bad when there's questions that I just skip over because I don't see them. And I also feel bad because I just don't have time to answer every question that comes in. So in any regard, I just pray that you would uh, be patient with us as we try to figure this out. So um, Jonathan and Dana ask this question. Hello, do you generally use one particular Bible when you're reading or studying or do you use different ones? Um, Follow-up question, do you recommend sticking with one main Bible and translation? 
Okay, Jonathan and Dana, it's an interesting question. I think kind of what you're asking is you're making a distinction here between maybe a translation and a particular Bible. Um, okay, I have used a particular translation now for the most part for some 35 plus years, and that's the New King James Version. It's undergone a few small revisions during that time, which they haven't really announced much. That's my preferred translation. I'm not trying to say that it's the only good Bible translation out there, but I think it is a good one. And there's several reasons why I think that is the preferred one. So I kind of think it's good for you to decide on having a main translation that you use for Bible study. And if you're going to teach, have a main translation that you teach from. However, I think it's also good to consult many different translations in both your study and sometimes in your devotional reading, because it's good to just mix it up in devotional reading to give things a different flavor, to give things a different um, take in your study. But let me tell you why I think it's important to generally stick with one translation. It's because I believe that I have benefited greatly by sticking mainly with one translation over the last 35 plus years in that it becomes ingrained in you. The phrases, the verses, the ideas, the words, all of that from the scriptures, it sinks down deep, deep roots. And so if you're going to take one of the good translations that's out there, ESV, King James Version, of course, uh, the later, inter, the, not the later, the earlier New International Versions, uh, some of the good translations, there's New American Standard, so forth and so on. There's advantages to having a translation and sticking with it for a long time. I think that if I were to skip around from translation to translation from year to year, every couple of years, I don't think it would develop the same deep roots in my heart and in my mind. That's number one. Number two, again, I want to stress, there's benefits to consulting other translations. And, and that, but I always, I think there's value in having an anchor translation. And for me, that's the New King, King James Version. If you want to talk about a particular Bible, uh, I used to have a particular Bible, but I don't write in my Bibles. I, I know, God bless you all who love to take notes in your Bibles. But brethren says, I just don't do that. I, I don't know why. I'm just not a note taker in my Bible. Therefore, um, I use several different Bibles that I'll look at from time to time, including sometimes an electronic Bible. So uh, that's kind of the answer to that question. I do think there's advantages to deciding on a good translation to stick with and staying with that over decades. Let me add one more thing. I tell everybody. If you're in the English-speaking world and you're a serious Bible student, you need to read through the King James Version from Genesis to Revelation at least once, if not more. Why in the King James Version? Because so many of the Bible commentaries and references that I have and that we use, I mean, so many of these books behind me and all around me are, that they are connected to the King James Version. You need to become familiar with how the King James Version speaks and acts and words and does all these things 
so that when people make biblical references, you know when they're making biblical references. You'll find this in Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon will be throwing out biblical references all the time, but people in modern translations may never know it because they don't have any familiarity with the King James Version. I think if you're a serious Bible student in the English language, you need to read through the King James Version at least once, if not a few times. Thanks for that question, Jonathan. All right, another question from Susan says, do we have apostles today? All right, Susan, let me give a quick answer to the question and then a qualification. The quick answer to the question is no, we don't have apostles today. We don't have apostles today in the way that the term is normally used today. The way that the term is normally used has the idea of some special person that God has lifted up to some special authority or status among believers today, um, sometimes organized in something called the New Apostolic Reformation. And in that kind of thinking, in that kind of terminology, in that kind of strict structure, no, we do not have apostles today. We do not have men, or women for that matter, with apostolic authority the way that the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or any of those New Testament apostles, we do not have people with their apostolic authority, period, end of story. If, if we were believers in the first century, New Testament times, someone like the Apostle Paul would have the authority from God to tell us what to do, and not just in a particular church, but the church in general, they would have amazing authority because Jesus Christ deliberately delegated that authority to the first century apostles and prophets. That does not exist in the world today. Now, some people want to talk about apostles with a capital A, referring to those kind of apostles. And other people want to talk about capitals with a small letter A. Uh, apostles in the sense of just um, specially sent people, missionaries, church planters, maybe people that God has raised up to lead not just churches, but movements. Maybe in that sense, Martin Luther was an apostle. John Wesley was an apostle. Other great men who have been called to lead not just churches, but movements were apostles. Okay, I, I can see that. But that's not how the word is commonly used today. In the way that the word is commonly used, I would say, no, there aren't apostles. And there's nobody that has that kind of apostolic authority over believers in general. Now, I believe in the concept of pastoral authority, in the authority of elders over a particular congregation. That's a biblical concept. Yes, we understand that. But somebody who has authority over uh, the body of Christ in general, no, that doesn't exist today. So I, I hope that answers that for you, uh, Susan. All right, next question. Um, Margie says, I was listening to a young pastor on TV, and during his hype sermon, he said Jesus was sneaky. I was offended. Should I have been? Well, Margie, I can't really answer that question. Because to me, context means a lot. 
if somebody were to say that Jesus was sneaky and then really give an explanation of what they meant and the explanation fit with the scriptures, I could see that maybe that would be maybe not the best way to say it, but not heretical. Um, it, it would all depend on the context. Uh, so I, I don't know. When people are using provocative language, they shouldn't be surprised and they shouldn't be offended if people are provoked. So if somebody's planning a sermon, say, okay, I'm going to say that Jesus is sneaky because that'll hit people. That'll impact them. Well, then don't be surprised and don't complain when people are impacted and people are provoked. You're using provocative language. And I'm not going to say that there's never a time to use certain language about God that would provoke people's thinking, but you need to be responsible for it and you need to be careful with it. So I, I can't give you a categorical answer to that, Carol, uh, because again, I would just have to know, uh, or excuse me, Margie, I'd have to know a lot more about the context of that. Um, Carol says, this country is tragically divided in who or what is bad leadership. Absolutely. And, and I think it's interesting. In our country today, when I say our country, I mean the United States. There are some people who would look at our present leaders and say, oh, this is God's blessing upon the nation. And there's other people who would look at the same leaders and say, oh, this is God's judgment upon the nation. And those same people might say the opposite about the previous administration, the previous president. So listen, um, Sometimes it's hard to understand these things and see them with clarity, except from a distance. Okay, Caroline says, Hi, Pastor David. Whoop, I just missed the question here. From Holland, 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. If the prayer is for the salvation of family members, will God save them? Well, let me turn to that passage. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 14 and 15. I think I know the verses you're talking about, but I want to make sure I have it right here. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Caroline, you're asking a difficult question because you're asking me the question, is it God's will for the salvation of a particular individual? Here's all I can say, is that we should pray assuming and hoping that it's God's will. That's just simply what we do. And we pray with full feeling that our prayers matter. Now, if you're looking for a guarantee, I don't have one. I don't think the Bible has one. But there are many, many stories about people who have been prayed for over decades, and they finally came to Christ. So don't weary in praying for your family members. Pray for them with confidence and pray for them, God, I believe that you're the God who can save. It is within God's power to change the human heart. And so even those who seem to be hardened against God, we can pray for them and ask that God would change their heart and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. So I can't give you a guarantee. I don't think the Bible gives a guarantee, but it just says pray, pray boldly, pray believingly, and then we 
with peace in our heart, we leave the matter before God. God bless you with that, Caroline. Lucia says, Hi, Pastor. Blessings from Spain. Thoughts on election, predestination, and double predestination? predestination? Um, maybe books or sources to learn more. I know it's a huge topic to explain here. Okay, Lucia, you're right. It's a huge topic. I will just say this. Um, the Bible clearly teaches predestination of believers. This is what it teaches. It says that, that we're predestined in Jesus Christ that we're chosen, that we're called, that he's chosen us. This is this is gives us so much peace and rest in Jesus Christ. Now, what the Bible does not teach is what I would call double predestination. Now, I know that there are people who will say, well, David, it's just a logical necessity. If God has predestined the elect, that means he's also predestined the non-elect. I just say, I'm going to stick with what the Bible says and just like the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp, John Trapp would say, <laughs> this is uh, one of my volumes of John Trapp. I guess there's altogether six volumes, five or six. Um, John Trapp would say this, where the scripture has no tongue, we must have no ears. In other words, if the Bible doesn't say it, we shouldn't pretend like it does say it. And the Bible does not say that God has predestined people for hell. So we just rest with that. We rest in the predestination of the believer, which is legitimately something we only know once we have believed. So, so we don't ever give an invitation saying, well, if you're predestined, then put your faith in Christ. No, that's nonsense. We implore people to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Well, all the while we know they'll never be able to do it unless God works on their heart first. But at the end of it all, we do not believe, or I'll just speak for myself, I do not believe in double predestination. Um, we want to uh, hear what the Bible says, but as John Trapp said, where the Bible has no tongue, we want to have no ears. All right, let's continue. Ruth Gordon, uh, thank you for your kind words, Ruth. God bless you. It's great to see you tuning in. Hosea, um, or Jose says, what do you think about the cruel apologetics that's going on on YouTube, speaking very badly about church leaders who are preaching a wrong gospel and a wrong doctrine? Well, Jose, you're not making specific reference to people, and I don't really want you to make specific reference to people. I'll just say, that I have noticed on YouTube a real nastiness in several apologetics-oriented ministries. It's just nasty. It's just, it's mean-spirited. It's rejoicing in sometimes uh, cruelty. And, and I think it's calculated just to get as many clicks as possible. We do need to confront error. But we also need to think the best of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And if somebody says something, I believe as believers, we have to understand that if there's a charitable way to take what they said and an uncharitable way to take what they said, 
we need to err on the side of charity. We also have to recognize that many times people say wrong things out of confusion or they say wrong things just out of ignorance than they do out of calculated um, heresy. We need to treat other people the way we would want to be treated. And we should never apply a standard to somebody else that we would not apply to ourselves. This is basic Christian living. And it seems to be so often forgot about on YouTube. When you find good apologetics people, value them, listen to them, support them. I'll give you one right now. Mike Winger. Mike Winger has a YouTube channel. Oh, a bunch of followers. I think more than 100,000 followers. Uh, he does great work on YouTube. He's a guy I highly recommend apologetics. Why? And I, I suppose maybe if I dug into it, I'd find some place where I disagree with his biblical interest, but that's not the issue. When I listen to Mike Winger, I listen to a man who's working hard to be as fair as he can be. He's not playing gotcha. He's not trying to grind enemies into the dust. He's not treating opponents as enemies on and on and on. He's trying to be as fair, as charitable, and as honest as he could be. I, I got a lot of respect for Mike Winger. So uh, when you find good apologists on YouTube, watch them, support them. All right. Uh, boy, I don't think I can take many more questions. Let me take a few more here. Agnes says, how to get rid of pride. Oh, man. Agnes. <laughs> Agnes, if I had the answer to that question, man, I could fix a lot in this world if I could get rid of pride or tell other people how to get rid of pride. Let me tell you, I, I think one of the things to focus on if you want to get rid of pride is to put your focus on Jesus Christ and on others and just learn to not think about yourself so much, period. Pride is obviously thinking a lot about yourself, but sometimes it can be just thinking too much about yourself. You can think poorly of yourself, but if you are your own focus, then pride is at work. There's something about pride that works against simple self forgetfulness. And that's what we should do. Let's forget about ourselves. Put our focus on Jesus. Put our focus on the people uh, that follow Jesus, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And put our focus on a needy world that needs Jesus. And put ourselves way down fourth down the line. Let's put our focus on other things, better things. So that's the main thing I can tell you about this. Um, try to cultivate in yourself self-forgetfulness. To me, that seems to be the opposite of pride. Okay. Uh, Suyet says, where are you from? Well, Suyet, I live in Santa Barbara, California. I lived my entire life in California, Southern California, except for seven years when I lived in Germany and I was the director of a small international Bible college in a wonderful smaller city in, in Germany called Siegen, Germany. 
those were wonderful years for myself and my family. We still have many, many dear brothers and sisters and partners in ministry in Siegen, Germany, and in Germany at large, in Europe at large. Uh, but yes, um, I'm from California, and uh, that's where I've lived my whole life, except for those seven years. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a few more questions here. Dave asks the question, David, is it a sin to take the mark of the beast, even if it is done under duress? And will the mark of the beast be obvious or done under Satan's deception? Dave, I, I'm not going to come. Uh, I don't think I can find the verses quickly, but they're not difficult to find in the book of Revelation. When you see how the mark of the beast is described in the book of Revelation, it's described in an economic aspect, but it's also definitely connected to a worship aspect. To truly take the mark of the beast, there will be some act of worship, some act of allegiance, some vow of commitment that someone makes to the Antichrist and his government. So I would say that whatever the mark of the beast ends up being, it will not be something purely economic. It will be connected in some way of some kind of act of worship, vow of allegiance, a commitment to submit to whatever, a governmental leader or system that will be very much in mind of it. So I, I think when you look at the verses in Revelation that have to do with the mark of the beast, that becomes clear that it's connected to worship. It's not merely an economic thing. Every once in a while, you'll read about somebody who gets a social security or a tax identification number. And in that number are the three numbers, 666. Now, I'm not taking it because it has 666. Listen, whatever the mark of the beast is, it's connected not just with economics, but with worship. Now, there's also a fair thing to consider, Buzz, if someone does take a, the mark of the beast, is that something that they could later repent of? And those people who are described as being damned, so to speak, undertaking the mark of the beast, does that have to do only with unrepentant people? There's something to be said for that. Um, I, I don't know if I could give you a hard and fast answer on that, but I would just emphasize this that I don't think anybody's going to be taking the mark of the beast by accident. It will be clear that in accepting this economic arrangement, you make some vow or pledge or worship towards an individual and their system of government. All right, you know what? Um, we're getting up over 40 minutes. Uh, I'm going to end here. I'll copy down the questions that I didn't get to. Maybe we'll get to at a later time. So glad that you could join me today. I hope you can join me on Thursday when we plan to do this again. I'm home a lot more now. My travel schedule is cleared out. So not only am I doing regularly one a week, I'm doing two question and answer a week. So pleased that you could join and uh, blessings to you. Thank you for joining me today in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.